everybody to the Holistic Savage podcast, where we like to talk about all things related to functional health, including functional medicine, functional fitness, functional spirituality, functional psychology. We really want to empower and educate people so they can really be proactive and accomplishing their best life, reaching optimal health. So I am very excited to have my good friend, mold expert, Dr. Lauren Tessier on the show with me today. Dr. Lauren, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very good. It's uh, this episode, this conversation has kind of been a long time coming, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna dive into one of my absolute favorite subjects with with mold and biotoxin illness and SIRS and all this cool stuff. I will quickly, you know, throw in the disclaimer of, to the audience. Certainly, this is for educational purposes only. Nothing in this conversation is intended for medical advice for you. Please be sure to work responsibly with your medical providers. And some of you struggling out there, uh, by the end of the episode, you might want to be reaching out to Dr. Lauren to get some of that expert help. So with that said, uh, you know, uh, as you know, we're, we're both kind of in this little bit of a mold club that's, that's growing. We had Sandeep on the, ep- on the show season one, and that was a little bit kind of an overview intro conversation of mold and even kind of talking more about the uh, coaching component and the psychological component of how to work through this stuff and, you know, what are running all of these tests going to do for you mentally as you try to work through, you know, these health complaints and struggles. But I want to take that a little bit deeper into some of the sciencey stuff, some of the sort of the, the, the complexities, because whenever I'm speaking or teaching about mold, I, I try to really make an initial point about, hey, you know, guys, mold is ubiquitous. Fungi is such a crucial part of our ecosystem, such a crucial part of our microbiome. We have fungus in us and on us all the time. So mm-hmm. we don't want to, you know, induce any of this, you know, fear or neurosis or orthorexic tendencies that really just don't serve us on the path to health. So I'd love to kind of kickstart by asking, you know, in your experience, how common do you feel like mold illness really is or how do you help people understand where yeah you know you've got some people that might get exposed asymptomatic nothing present and other people that you know that canary in the coal mine they get they get crushed how do you uh speak to this yeah i you know it's it's interesting because um the way i have my practice set up it's really a self-selected practice my practice name is life after mold so usually the people that i have coming into my space are people who have you know been to like five different Lyme doctors they've been on Lyme treatment for however many years they've gone through the you know IV antibiotics they've gone through um, the Cowden protocol they've gone through everything you know you name it and they kind of hit this point where you know I have Lyme in my history but also you know I'm just realizing kind of mold in the house so um you know that's usually the people that end up coming to me some of the biggest complaints that i see from people are just unrelenting fatigue if there was one thing that i could really just put a pin in and have people kind of step back and look at it's the brain fog and fatigue there's lots of other stuff that really comes with it but like those are the ones that i find are the most problematic for people um and they tend to try to be treated by other outlets. So when you're encountering these things and they're just resistant to everything you're throwing at it, then it's really time to really step back and think about what's happening in the environment. Absolutely. And, you know, the the mold, lime kind of env- environmental acquired illness world, um, 
on the one hand, I, I feel like in our industry, it's super popular right now. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of, uh, you know, just like everything else, kind of that information overload. And I think it makes it hard for both practitioners, let alone, you know, patients, clients, consumers to um, really figure out what they need. And, and certainly I, I get a ton of people that will come to me where, um, you know, they've, they've been through uh, practitioner after practitioner, they've spent, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars right, on right. different treatment and, and mo modalities. So um, I'm interested to hear your take on, you know, why is it so hard for people that are ill and, and struggling with biotoxin illness or chronic Lyme and mold? Um, and some of the nuances of even finding a practitioner that can effectively help them. Right. Um, you know, it's... It's hard to navigate for people because there's so many different layers of when someone uh, approaches a practitioner. Um, you know, you have the layer of what's happened in their life, what's happened in their uh, social, emotional relationships around them, what's happening with the provider on that day. In most cases, we hope that we are a blank canvas, that we can hold space with people and reflect back and kind of give what is needed. Um, but, you know, sometimes practitioners don't vibe with patients, or I should say the other way around. Sometimes patients don't vibe with practitioners. And, you know, that can be an added element to finding the correct help. So, you know, you're having someone who is sick, someone who potentially has an inflamed brain, someone who might be, you know, not supported in their social circle to go and reach out help. And then maybe I or another practitioner might be someone who reminds you that one person that, like rear-ended you that one time on the highway. You don't really vibe. So you also never know like the, um, the what's just going to kind of come with the therapeutic interactions that you have. And then you load on top of it all of the other health issues that are coming with it. So, um, you know, it can really be really nuanced to find um, the help that you need. And I, for one, both as a patient in my private life, you know, and a practitioner in, in my um, in my professional life, I understand what it is to to not vibe. And so I always remind people. In fact, I did it today. I told someone, you know, like they they want to go back to their primary care and get some basic workup done. And they had a really nasty relationship with them previously. And I invited them to consider what it would be like to find another doctor where you have a clean footing and there's not this kind of a difficult in trust interaction and that difficult uh, dance with nuance in the relationship. Mm -hmm. You're so right. And a lot of times, whatever it is that I'm talking about, I always kind of try to draw that line in the sand of, well, okay, you know, psychology and physiology, it's, it's the two sides of the, the, you know, human form and they can't really be separated, but just for the sake of making it easier to navigate all these different layers of, uh, kind of the healing journey, we do almost have to draw that line if there's the psychological contributors and then the physiological, because, yeah, you know, um, it's something we've previously discussed. If, if a patient or client has, uh, you know, victim mentality and, and a lot of orthorexia or kind of these behavioral disorders, or they just don't drive with, with the practitioner, it's going to mm -hmm. make it damn near impossible to try to navigate the nuances of, of the physiology. Right. Um, so it's definitely a, a tricky thing. I'm curious, how did, um, how did you become really embedded into 
you know, mold and, and the surge worlds and, and lime, how did this end up being your, your specialty? I feel bad for so many people in the audience right now who have heard this story. <laughs> I'm, I apologize in advance. I'm sure some people are rolling their eyes at it. Um, but, you know, there's a, a few different ways that I've become involved. There was the kind of, um, <clears throat> I could say the, the demonstration from the universe, and then there is the personal experience, and then there's the motivator. So, you know, the demonstration from the universe, I came to Waterbury in 2013 we had had a history of floods here from Irene in uh, uh, 2011 um, and I had some uh, really resistant uh, treatment that uh, sorry some resistant fatigue some resistant like rashes and brain fog that really weren't responding to normal naturopathic things and um, kind of just sat back with some of the history and really thought about the concept of what is what is happening water damage wise or environmental and at that point you know it, mold is uh, anything and um any any education that you go through mold is a quick glance i will tell you that um so you know it's kind of like oh maybe i should ask about mold and come to find out you know um a couple of these different patients essentially had horrible influx of water damage in their home, in their basement. And, um, you know, that's what really started the push forward on the mold path. That's really lifted the veil. Um, and then since then, I've had my own personal experiences uh, with mold exposure that have been um, very interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Um, everything from living in a moldy environment for uh, unfortunately, in five years to moving into a new home and um, essentially uh, remediating ourselves successfully, I might add, which was a really interesting and cool experience. Um, and then there's the personal motivator. <clears throat> so when I was a kid, um, I had this one uncle that I loved and I adored. Um, and he, he was loud and fun and just totally resonated with him. And uh, as he got older, he moved into a different apartment. <clears throat> and it was a, unfortunately, a, a like a walkout basement apartment. And uh, he developed an autoimmune disease while he was in there, also known as uh, Wegner's granulomatosis. It took the hospital, I believe, um, quite a few weeks to diagnose it. And while he was in the hospital, you know, we did the family thing. We went in, we organized his things. We kind of made his home a home to come back to. And during that process, you know, there was the realization that, oh, there's a lot of mold here. And that was something that my mother had mentioned to me. It kind of stayed in the back of my head. And um, he got better, felt a little bit better, returned to the moldy space. And about a year later, he had succumbed to his autoimmunity while still living in that same uh, basement apartment. So there was always something there of autoimmunity comma mold equals loss of my uncle, very deeply ingrained um, in my heart from a really young age. And just kind of as the time has progressed, you know, I, I've done a good amount of research with mold and have made autoimmunity connections or the possibility of 
hey, this this could be something. So I think about, you know, my uncle a lot. And there's definitely that concept of if I can prevent someone else from suffering such a loss, you know, I, I would love to be able to do that. So that's really what one of the things that keeps me motivated in my heart of hearts in this process. Yeah, beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I I don't know that I've ever met anybody that, you know, became involved in kind of the functional healing, holistic health world without going through their own crisis or a loved one. And certainly having started my career as a trainer and nutritionist, I, I never would have imagined that, you know, mold would be such a focal point of my right. career. But hey, you know, I, I had my experiences and it, it kind of propels us on that path. And, you know, nothing more uh, kind of altruistic and beautiful than, you know, turning around and, and using that in service to others. But you know, so with, with mold, I, I know that you get them. I know I've gotten them a lot. And it, it breaks my heart where there's so many people who will be struggling from all these mysterious symptoms, mysterious health complaints. They, I mean, I've been there. We all, some, a lot of us listening and involved in the subject have. We do our due diligence. We're responsible. We're proactive. We go to our primary care physician. Oh, your blood work looks normal. We can't find anything wrong with you. Maybe mm-hmm. it's all in your head. Do you want to yep. take something to make you feel better? Like that is unfortunately the the typical narrative. And so something I want to open up and before we go too far down the rabbit hole, you know, I'm certainly not at all here to ever speak ill of conventional medicine. They're amazing at, at certain things, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of gaps to the model. I think we can all uh, agree upon that. And so, uh, it's a little interesting because where it's like, okay, the agricultural industry, they level mycotoxins in, in food and they're aware of monitoring levels. There's the established toxicology levels or, you know, there's even stuff that they can add to animal feed to, uh, you know, mitigate the mycotoxins in the GI tract in, in uh, you know, cows and pigs and stuff. Okay, so we have that. And then, you know, big pharma is smart enough of, hey, we can use these mold secondary metabolites as statin drugs. We can use mycophenolic acid as an immunosuppressant. But then when it comes to, you know, detecting maybe fungal imbalances or fungal infections, or then, you know, the toxicity being a totally separate thing, it's kind of, it feels like it's sort of blatantly ignored. I'd love to kind of get your take on that being a naturopathic physician. Yeah. Um, You know, the mold is far and wide. It's everywhere. It exists in all realms. Um, there's some really beautiful things that come out of our our fungal ecology. You know, we we have a lot of uh, wonderful gifts from from the world when it comes to mushrooms that degrade petroleum and all of these really cool beneficial things. You know, like breads and alcohols and wines and all of these great things. But you know, we do have that that kind of balance. So I invite into this dialogue too the fact that. <clears throat> Just like functional medicine, just like naturopathy, just like, you know, good bacteria, bad bacteria. There's always two sides to a coin. There's always two different kind of push and pulls. And, um, you know, there is a concern with why conventional medicine doesn't pay too much mind to it. But I'll also say there's a concern in naturopathic medicine about, you know, why I'm doing and receiving all of this education and sharing all of this education with people however many years after I've completed my formal training. You know, there's definitely some element in all of healthcare that we're only really just starting to turn an eye 
back to to mold and fungi. And the question really is why? Um, and I think as practitioners, we need to be responsible in this dialogue uh, because we represent one another and we also represent our, our clients and our patients. So what I can say and what I can focus on are the facts. Like, yes, we use secondary metabolites, mycotoxins as different types of medications for sure. Um, Life-saving, frankly, you know. Um, we also um, <clears throat> use a lot of antifungals in our agricultural industry. Um, and, you know, why, why aren't we paying attention to certain things in the human population. And I think a lot of it comes back to the way we have set up our practice of science. Um, for people who might not be familiar with how studies are run, there's an institutional review board, which is a group of people that kind of sit and look at the setup for each one of these um, studies to make sure that it's ethical, to make sure you're not holding a four-year-old child hostage and exposing them to okra toxin egg. So there's something to be said about the ethicalness of whatever you're studying. Um, and in that case, in our um, whole entire field, uh, we center around this concept of a double blind placebo controlled study, meaning that whoever is participating in the in intervention, they can't tell um, what they're being given. Same thing for whoever's researching. So everyone's blind to whatever they're studying and then the outcome happens at the end and they crunch the numbers and figure everything out and adjust, um, adjust the results <clears throat> as needed. So anyway, long story short, we have this concept of science where it's, it's not an ethical thing to put a human in a box and pump in ocrotoxin, but it's totally okay to do that to an animal. So we have this uh, world where um, the, uh, what's the word that I want to, a specific word I want to use there, but, um, you know, the, the value of <clears throat> our information is happening in a way that we can't do with mold. So, you know, there's a lot of people are saying, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And you say, well, first of all, the evidence is it's danger in and of itself. We can't, we can't show you that particular evidence because it's dangerous. And secondly, we do have some evidence, and it's in animal studies, or in the case of humans, it's in something called a, a longitudinal study, which looks at a group of people who may have had an unintentional exposure in the past. So <clears throat> these two types of studies, they don't seem to fulfill the, the, the desire for knowledge. And so you know, for a typical conventional doctor who's pressed for time, you know, and doesn't have the opportunity to go into the literature and sit down and read all of the animal studies and put two and two together, um, they're just going to blow it off as nothing. And that's, it's sad and it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, that's part of the reason why I do my monthly writing for MDNR. Um, I crank out, you know, uh, research synthesis, you know, 2,500 word essays about autoimmunity, brain health, these things from mold and mycotoxins really coming from the data that I can get hold of stuff that's frankly available in PubMed. So, you know, it's, I don't know why people are so resistant to it. 
Um, I think it's just a matter of um, convenience mm -hmm. and a matter of just the way the system is set up to just close it off and mm -hmm. just make it not available. You know, I, I'm so myopic with my focus on mold, but there's got to be other other pieces of research that suffer that same fate. You know, mm -hmm. there there absolutely is, and something. You know, I'm I'm just a kind of a young dude having a lot of fun these days with my career, and it's it's fun for me to because uh, you know I don't I don't have a background in naturopathic medicine or or I have a background in bro science, and uh, you know so it's fun because I can kind of make these just observations and see what's going on. And it definitely, you know, uh, I won't go into that tangent, but a lot of times kind of conventional, alternative functional, it, it almost feels a lot like a political conversation of kind of you got the super conservative Republican versus the radical left. And they kind of keep each other in balance to some degree. You don't want the teeter-totter kind of leaning too far either way. Yeah. Sometimes in the functional medicine space, it can feel very down the rabbit hole, very theoretical, very, very uh, sensationalized, maybe not really clinically validated or researched yet. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, I mean, sure, we need to blaze new trails. We need to always be asking those questions, digging deeper. And then I'm kind of starting, well, you know, I, I saw a commercial for a pharmaceutical grade omega-3 supplement or a pharmaceutical grade curcumin. So it's kind of like once something gets validated enough, you know, conventional kind of cherry picks and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, we knew that the whole time. That's our, that's our standard of treatment. It's just way after, you know, the, right, <laughs> right. the common things first. So there is a lot of layers to that dynamic, which then makes it so hard for, for, you know, the patient trying to, you know, find the help they need to, to get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree 110% for sure. And I think that, you know, there is something to be said though, every now and then, you'll see these two sides, like, for example, you said, you know, in political, for example, like, liber, uh, liberal and conservative, there's always a, a melding. There's always some group of people, whether it's functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, you know, there's always some type of middle path that really, I think, needs to be honored and held up um, as probably the, the best course of action, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then in the world of, of mold and biotoxin illness, you know, we, we hear this term SIRS get thrown around a lot. And um, I, I see it more and more. And now MCAS, you know, kind of feels like the diagnosis of the month to some degree. So it's like, okay, this, this SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome that I think was coined by Dr. Richie Shoemaker, Mocker, mm -hmm. I don't know how he pronounces his last name. Um, and I know that you're Shoemaker certified and he was, you know, a, a pioneering uh, figure in, in this world. Um, and, but I am, I'm seeing a ton now, you know, A4M and, and all the, all these organizations are, you know, jumping on kind of the, the surge train, so to speak. Um, so I'd love to hear you being a, a uh, you know, SERS certified physician and all that kind of speak to you know, what is SIRS? And these are generally thought of as kind of those canaries in the coal mine, the, you know, the worst of the worst. They're the ones that are just not getting better, which is really what you specialize in. Sure. So I think before we go there, I want people to understand um, this concept of uh, mold illness. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and if you think back to our Venn diagram in our childhood and, you know, how it was beaten to us in, in school, um, we have our two overlapping circles. And now if we took that and we flipped it and we had four 
overlapping circles. That is how I ask people to envision mold illness. And each one of those main circles is a type of way that mold illness can interact with us. And then in between those circles is a way that it can kind of manifest and what it looks like. So in each one of those circles, if we were to label them, one would be mold fungal allergy, which is something widely accepted by the medical community. The next one would be uh, fungal infection, something more accepted by um, the medical community. And the bottom two would be SIRS and mycotoxicosis. And so um, depending on how someone presents, they can have a bit of a mycotoxic picture, um, you know, as a result of a fungal infection that they have. Um, they could have some mycotoxicosis that after you clear it out, continues on as SIRS. They could be someone that has a lot of the typical allergenic triad, um, you know, so asthma, um, <clears throat> eczema, and in general allergies, and they could have a toxic component as well, too. So, you know, I, I remind practitioners that people don't show up just as one. People show up as this, like, hodgepodge of, like, a twisted-up ball of yarn, and it's up for you to ask the clinical questions um, and provide the correct testing so you can suss out which path is the one that you're likely to follow or to look into. So SIRS, for me, it's the last thing. It's really the last thing. When I started out doing uh, shoemaker's work, it was the case of rollout. You have someone come in. They're coming to me for this. We do C3A, C4A, TGF-beta-1, the alphabet soup of um, these tests. And what I started seeing in these folks was that they, they weren't meeting case definition of SIRS. And so the difficulty with SIRS is that the true definition of what it is, is like a moving target. It's a moving target like autoimmunity. So something like, let's say, um, lupus. Lupus has a criteria where you got to meet like three out of the five or something and then have these two clinical symptoms or something like that. So there's kind of a constantly moving my lupus, my look different from your lupus, my look different from their lupus. Similar thing with SIRS. SIRS has a very um, uh, a flexing case definition where we have this list of systems um, uh, and we ask people these questions to see how many symptom clusters they fall into. Um, and then based off of that, we then go to testing and how many abnormal testing parameters do they fall into? So someone's SIRS could look a lot different from yours, could look a lot different from mine, but what I've seen in a lot of these patients is the first step of SIRS is to get people out of exposure and to put them on a binder. Well, guess what? That's the first step to mycotoxicosis too. So I, I have this way that I work with people in that we pinky swear that we're going to work on exposure outside of my therapeutic interaction with them. And as they're kind of getting things in order and going, and we can kind of double back and talk more about that later, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> we start kind of working towards detoxing them. Now, there's a whole process that you do prior to detoxing someone because you just can't go in and like detox people. That's just um, it's asking for trouble, especially in a lot of these really sensitive folks. So <clears throat> after some time of detoxing people, maybe like six months, 
after they're out of exposure, you sit back and you go, okay, how are you feeling? And some of them recover really quickly. And that's great. I tell them, get out of here. You're good. I'm here if you need me. Godspeed. Um, but it's after we remove that toxic exposure that people still continue to kind of feel cruddy. Mm -hmm. We then kind of move on to the questioning of SIRS or we then move on to the question of, well, maybe the mycotoxins aren't in their environment. Maybe they're in their body. So maybe they're a result of a colonization or an infection. So SIRS is always kind of the worst case scenario for me. And, you know, you can assign someone SIRS and then they go through treatment and it turns out they were just a mycotoxicosis. So the question is, what do you call that then? You know, we are in a position, physicians especially, who can assign diagnosis codes. It is a ethical dilemma to sign someone's chart with SIRS. And this is something I'm going to be talking about at the AAMP um, conference, mm -hmm. uh, Paul Anderson's conference in um, the fall in Seattle. And SIRS doesn't actually exist. SIRS does not have an ICD-10 code. So here we are. We're having really sick people come in, we're treating them, and we're assigning them with a diagnosis code that actually belongs to a totally different disease state. We're assigning them a diagnosis code of uh, R65.10, which is SIRS, S-I-R-S. And this is high temperature, high heart rate, um, high respiratory rate, and um, elevated blood cells. So it's either high or low, actually, on all of those, more or less. And when you look at a typical SIRS person, SIRS, I'm saying it with quotations for people, um, they don't meet that criteria. So there's the ethical dilemma of we're putting on this super bill, on this piece of paper, a diagnosis code for something completely else. And it's like, well, what about people's life insurance? What about, um, you know, the, the future ethical considerations of how this diagnosis code is going to follow them around? So when it comes to using SIRS, I'm super cautious about it. And I don't mean. Hey, guys, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all so much for listening to the Holistic Savage podcast. We on the Holistic Savage team all really appreciate you and want to stay connected with you. So please rate, review, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. And if you like the podcast, help get the word out. And now back to the show. I need to discredit any of the work that Shoemaker is doing because I do believe that a chronic inflammatory response syndrome exists. And, um, you know, I think that we really need to be raising up the discussion of this to um, to higher powers um, that are in charge of these ICD-10 codes. Um, are you familiar with um, Jenna Jenna Luther? I think it's L-U-C-H-E hyphen T-H-Y-E-R. I don't know that I am. Okay, I encourage everyone who's listening right now. If you want to have your mind blown, and I mean like absolutely blown, go look up her name. She spoke at ILADS in 2017. I'm hoping that you guys could even like hyperlink to this video. Sure. She is someone who does tons of humanitarian efforts 
Um, she works with child trafficking or against child trafficking, um, you know, uh, female circumcision, all of these crimes against humanity. And one of the things that she actually fought for, for representation in ICD-11, so the next set of diagnosis codes, is a uh, uh, neural line. So Ooh. she essentially went um, before, I, I believe it was the WHO, I'm sorry about not knowing off the top of my head, guys. Um, she went before them and said, hey, lack of representation is a crime against humanity. Like, <laughs> these wow. people are spending their life, her inheritance or work, whatever they have, any type of last bit of money mm -hmm. on a treatment for something that's very real in their body but doesn't exist in these all-knowing books of codes, mm -hmm. and therefore they're not receiving appropriate care, they're not receiving timely care, they're not being represented appropriately. And so there's this thing where once you get a diagnosis code, it really represents the ability for the medical paradigm to pay attention and to adopt it, which kind of goes back to being able to open up the dialogue about research trials mm -hmm. and all these, like it finally exists. So, um, you know, I, I, I've sent her an email and kind of pinged her and been like, Hey, mold. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and just trying to, um, hopefully open up a dialogue with her at some point because I think that representation for these issues are really big and really important. And, you know, the truth, the truth of the matter is there's no diagnosis card for SIRS. There's no diagnosis code for my mycotoxicosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's not. There's yeah. accidental aflatoxin exposure by food. And once mm -hmm. again, that goes back to the food and the agricultural industry. And you, you can't code people with those, you know, if it's, you think it's due to an environment. So, um, SIRS, I don't think it's as widespread as it is claimed to be by 25% of the population, um, only because the work that I do with people that's really working to address mycotoxicosis and infection or colonization, very, very, very few people beyond that get into that SIRS realm. I love all this. I love what you're saying with, you know, opening up to kind of the broader ethical and, you know, working with um, healthcare and, and advancing the diagnostic criteria and whatnot, because, you know, so many people in the functional um, space and holistic alternative, you know, paying a lot of out of pocket and just bleeding, you know, all right. of their money. And so certainly with you know, mold, I, I think about just all the different layers of, okay, you know, there's sure some, some dietary uh, exposure possibly or the more severe, you know, sick building syndrome kind of stuff. Um, you know, and it makes me think back, like, what was that? St. Anthony's fire with the, mm -hmm. the, the ergot mm -hmm. poisoning and everything. Yeah. Of You look through history of like, well, I mean, we've, we've co-evolved with mold forever. And as you alluded to, where there's that beautiful documentary, Fantastic Fungi, that, you know, talks all about the beautiful side of mm -hmm. fungi and mushrooms from a, you know, systems biology perspective. And of course, too, you know, I can't help but think of some of the um, evolutionary adaptation to it of, you know, viruses have really shaped our protein adaptation or kind of what sort of hormetic effect we might have with uh, resilience to mycotoxins and you know, it's all very fascinating. But then, of course, um, like using myself as an example, I previously was in a relationship. Um, uh, I was living in a home with uh, her and her 
three children. And, you know, we didn't know at the time that there was a lot of mold and, and whatnot, although bathroom, bathroom flooded. So that might have been a little bit of a clue. Um, but it was very interesting. You know, I was just personal trainer and, and nutrition coach. And um, we were trying to navigate because it was so distinct. There was one day in particular, you know, she woke up and was just completely just locked up musculoskeletal pain, mm-hmm. ice pick pain. And that was literally just the beginning of like the worst phase of my life where, you know, she was that one that just bedridden and mm-hmm. you know, only getting out of bed to take care of her three children. Um, you know, and I'm frantically trying to play mad scientist to help us navigate the situation. We uh, got went to the conventional doctor. That's what got me hooked on methylation. We did. Uh, we couldn't afford to meet with, with a naturopathic physician, chiropractic, you name it. And it was interesting how. Uh, looking back, it wasn't really until, you know, I, I got connected to, uh, you and, and, uh, Dr. Deep that I was like, oh my God, you know, then everything started clicking. Um, because whereas with her kind of the, the crippling and, and more the severe symptoms or her son, a lot of sinusitis, brain uh-huh. fog, allergy mm-hmm. symptoms for me, you know, manifesting more as kind of the depressive and fatigue, um, and so, you know, you mentioned the 25% kind of alluding to like the, the genetic side of it, which my point being like from an evolutionary perspective, I could see how, you know, that HLA polymorphism uh, helped because, oh, you know, canary in the coal mine keels over. Right. This is not a safe environment. So I am curious, though, because these days there is this explosion and obsession with genetics and... Yeah. I, you know, I certainly feel that there's much more that we don't know than, than what we do know. Oh, for sure. Um, and you know, even like you, you buy a 23andMe from Walmart and 23andMe software asks you, do you want to know what your genes are? Because if you have higher predisposition, Alzheimer's, do you want to know? And so you literally have to select that. But my, and you know, there's the risk of false positives or false negatives with some testing. But anyways, the the point, the question I want to ask with um, the genetics, you know, there are those that like, oh, my gosh, I have the dreaded HLA, I'm screwed, Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, just induces this fear, this neurosis. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, from your perspective, how valuable do you feel like the genetic component is, especially when it's like, well, just because you have the gene or, yeah, I mean, how, how valuable do you think that is for this? For, for SIRS in particular, um, I, I have mixed emotions. Uh, well, I shouldn't say emotions. Um, I have seen clinically uh, mixed relevance for the HLAs. Um, in particular, I have seen SIRS cases, you know, that um, don't really meet uh, the, the case definition. Um, so essentially kind of low-level SIRS that have the, the really bad bad dreaded gene and then i've seen people with the dreaded gene who have no signs of SIRS for their case definition they're more of a mycotoxic person um you know so it's it's really hard to hang our hat on and what we've seen from um you know genetics recently you know is that just because you have some type of heterozygous or homozygous mutation doesn't mean that the gene is completely defunct sure there are certain um inheritable diseases that, you know, typically 
And in death, because of some type of inherited genetic anomaly, that does happen. Um, but, you know, some of the things that people get really um, worked up and concerned about, they're, they're just um, not things that are a death sentence, you know. And when you're looking at something like the HLA, um, I think people also need to be reminded what this is. Your, your HLA are code for the little baseball mitts on the outside of your white blood cells that catch the antigen hold on to it and show it to the rest of the immune system and say, hey, go after this. In SIRS, the concept is that that baseball mitt is now really greasy and it can't really get a grip on the antigens that are coming in. So instead of catching that ball and showing it to the rest of the immune system cleared out, it drops out of the mitt where it just kind of rolls around on the floor and then another ball comes and another ball comes and another ball comes and you know all of a sudden you're burdened with toxins. So the concept of SIRS is really working from an antigen removal perspective. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't see it as often. And that could be just me and the population and the people that I work with. Um, but, you know, what, what I do see, though, is abnormal detox pathways. And genetics do code for that. Mm -hmm. You know, people will have abnormals, phase one, phase two, even phase three detox that can really uh, affect their clinical outcomes. Um, so, you know, I do get excited when people already have their 23andMe data pulled from years ago on a PDF on their computer, you know, that they can upload somewhere else now. Now that we have all these, there was a period of time where we were just um, at a loss for um, any of the uh, uh, translational programs. It was like maybe a year or so. It was a little bit of a dearth. Um, but now it seems like there's a lot more people who are coming in who have done this. They've used companies like, I think, like Self-Decode and things like that to really get that information tangible. And once again, it's genetics. So there's a concept of nature and nurture. It's good to know where weaknesses lie. But in those cases, they're really just weaknesses for people that can really be supported um, or further exacerbated, depending on what you're doing for the person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fun. And, you know, I think as long as uh, a lot of it too, is kind of how people, you know, choose to consume uh, and then perceive this information. Is it in a, you know, fear inducing way? Is it in an empowering way? And I think it's kind of up to each individual to create that for themselves because yeah, you know, we can identify these genetic predispositions or, or kind of enzymatic weaknesses. Um, and we don't fully understand how the body might be compensating for this in a lot of unique biochemical ways. So mm -hmm. we certainly can't get like too petri dish reductionistic or, or whatnot. Um, but then, of course, too, like you said, some sometimes it might not really be relevant. Or uh, that's where it's like you know uh, the amount of exposure, the the resiliency, you know, to uh, the degree of exposure. Is there the colonization? And so. You know, definitely, I think an important point I heard you say was, okay, like step one, and yeah, everybody says it, above all else of getting out of the exposure. And I'm curious of, do you feel, because I think about it a lot, um, certainly like living in a severely water damaged building or, or a building where there is, you know, visible, measurable mold growth is going to be kind of more worst case scenario. I'm curious, though, how much you feel like dietary exposure i can't help but you know consider it with like 
you know, grains, for example, being probably the more contaminated or mycotoxin contaminated mm -hmm. and, you know, these spores and the toxins that can't really be cooked or processed out very easily. And, you know, how grain heavy the American diet is. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on how much the, the dietary exposure plays into some of this. Yeah. Um, before I jump into that, can I double back to one thing that you said that I think is really yeah. um, profound that kind of popped into my head? Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, there's a concept of nature and nurture. Um, we all kind of uh, at some point come from, you know, the, 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 the one hominid or something like that, you know, and we've all kind of trickled down into our branches through years, our families, our ethnicities, all those types of things. When we sit and we look at a piece of paper and it says, well, this snip right here is um, mutated and um, that could be a problem. The first thing is that not all mutations are problematic. For some people, they're protective. Um, the second thing is that you are, it's not a report card. It's not a report card. <laughs> you know, this is, this is you. This is your genetic identity. This is, there is no perfect person to compare these things to. There is not one person out there who has, you know, when you're looking at these SNP report cards, let's say they grade them usually by color of like green, yellow, and red. There's no perfect divine person that is going to score all green. Like that's just not the reality. And so, you know, I, I think for people to step back, and this is a little bit more esoteric and maybe a little bit more heady than what people sure. are after, but, you know, it's the concept of honoring yourself, honoring where you're coming from, and supporting yourself, not trying to correct yourself, not trying to pigeonhole yourself, not trying to, you know, morph yourself into something that you physically can't be, but maybe to potentially support yourself. So just kind of wanted to center back to that before we hop on, because I think a lot of yeah. people come in and they're just like, I'm wrong. And you're like, no, you're so right. <laughs> you're here. You're with us. Like, we can support you, but you don't. I, I think so many people get caught up in the fact. I think this is just humanity in general, chasing the perfect, chasing, you know, what they're so inclined to be and the, the best. And there's the best of yourself, but you're never going to be the best and the most, you know, perfect. You're only going to be the best version of yourself. So, just kind of, I hope that brings some peace to some people yeah. who are listening right now. I don't know. I, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm glad you made a point of that. Um, and the majority of my podcasts are very uh, esoteric and heady, but that that's so important. And, and I think especially these days, like, you know, obviously everybody's kind of familiar with this concept of American culture. We're chasing the perfect physique, the perfect life, the perfect, you know, mm -hmm. fence in our front yard. Um, but I think that is part of what I worry about a little bit with the holistic health movement is there is kind of this idea of, well, no, you're not at optimal health and like basically mm -hmm. you're a loser. And there is kind of this shaming of, look, now don't get me wrong. One in two of the American population is pre-diabetic. So yes, I, I do think as a nation, we need to up our health game by a lot. However, we don't, we don't want that to turn into like metabolic shaming where well, no, 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 you're not optimal health. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, what yeah. is optimal health? How do we measure optimal health? How do you know? So I love, I love that point. I'm glad you made it. Yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to hear that. I, it's always just so interesting when you get to 
really, I can, I can talk to people about mycotoxins all day. I can talk about mold all day. Talk about, but when people actually get the opportunity to step back, maybe out of their role as a provider or even out of their role as a patient, um, I, I think that can be so insanely powerful. Some people might think about the concept of stepping out of yourself as dissociative or uh, that's not my goal, but it's amazing how getting that objectivity and just taking the moment to kind of look at the dialogue, look what's happening, how much that can transform um, health, well-being, and then even in like really acute cases of mold exposure. Um, anyway, so the food, the food. <laughs> Um, so getting back to the food statement, you know, we do have a good amount of mycotoxins in our food system. In fact, we have some of, on certain foods, we have some of the lowest standards compared to third world countries for some of our mycotoxins. Um, anyone who wants to dig more into this can pull up the um, CAST book, C-A-S-T. Right now off the top of my head, I'm forgetting what it stands for, but there's just such a plethora of information in there if you really want to dive into mycotoxins in food. It's a great publication. It's worthwhile. I think it might even be downloadable for free. Um, so, you know, how I navigate that with people, I, it's really dependent on the phenotype of the person. Um, I tend to think about diet as a don't, don't change it for now. There's always a dialogue with people where I'm like, yes, but we will get to it. Because when people come to me, they can barely sit up in bed. Like I'm even surprised they've gotten into the office. Um, and I'm going to ask them to like change their diet. You know, it's one of those things like, do you have enough spoons? Are you familiar with spoonies and the concept of spoons? No. <laughs> no. So in the, in the chronic illness community and spoons are just the, the metaphor that's given, you have 13 spoons for the day. Could be anything. Could be 13 coins. Could be whatever you want. 13 spoons. Each one of the things you do throughout a day requires a spoon. So getting out of bed and showering, that's one spoon. Feeding your children, that's another spoon. Towards the end of the day, you're either faced with the decision with one spoon left, am I going to go and make a meal by hand or am I going to spend that spoon sitting with my child and reading a bedtime story and interacting with them? Or am I going to spend that spoon going and getting fresh air and being in my body and sitting quietly and attentively. So it's, um, it's something that's really important for people when it comes to diet is if you don't have the bandwidth, that's another way I put it, it's just going to be detrimental for me to assign something at the moment. So diet usually comes later. And the reason why is I consider the American diet an X variable, meaning that we know we have this amount that's the legal allowable limit in food. It's not going to be any higher, hopefully, <laughs> but it will be lower. So if someone goes about eating their diet, same day to day, over time, I more or less assume that that is a constant variable. I know I'm making a large presumption that what is going in isn't being stored or you know, isn't uh, bioaccumulating, but I, I leave that as if we don't play with diet and they don't change their diet too much, we know that that intake is going to be more or less the same from day to day. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's only later on that we really mess with diet. And when we do start playing around with diet, I tend to go keto for people, unless there are people who are of a smaller stature. They tend to be people that are, um, you know, Ayurvedic medicine wise, they tend to be the, the Pitavada, you know, they're really fast, they're really airy, small metabolism. Like, I'm not going to put someone who doesn't have weight to lose on a, a keto diet, a low carb diet. It's just not going to happen. They're not going to be able to physically feel like they're grounded and rooted in their body. But, you know, you have someone like me who's like, put a kappa. I could fast for like days on end, no problem. And in those instances, keto diet can be really helpful. And for numerous reasons too, you know, like you're avoiding grain. So that's that right off the bat. Um, and then that, that high fat component of the keto diet really works to stimulate our gallbladder. It allows for a lipid exchange in our tissues, circulating in, circulating out. You know, these are things that I know you're all aware of, Brendan. Um, and the other thing is it also can help with hormonal imbalance. It can help address um, MMP9 mm-hmm. for folks. So there's a lot of reasons why I put people on the keto diet. The two major downfalls of the keto diet, well, three, is potentially detoxing too fast. Um, uh, the keto flu in the beginning for people. Um, and the third is you're eating usually animal protein that has some type of bioaccumulation and mycotoxins. Mycotoxins get stored in fat usually. So there's a little bit of a dance there too. Um, everyone, almost everyone I see on urine mycotoxin testing comes back with elevated overtoxins, you know, and I just kind of say, oh, geez, yep, that's that's pretty familiar. And for most people, I tend to use real-time laboratories. Mm-hmm. Um, most people are usually run there at like one and a half to three. You know, um, it's usually some of the other uh, mycotoxins on that test that I correlate a little bit more with the indoor environment and indoor environment exposure. So, um, you know, there's something to be had or something to be said about the the reality that mycotoxins are going to be present on most people's tests. In fact, it is a rarity that I see people who have, you know, a negative mycotoxin test. Um, it happens, but it's usually people who have already been undergoing treatment with me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you um, are mentioning all this uh, in the 13 spoons. I, I've never heard that metaphor, but I definitely, when I'm consulting people, uh, I'm very deliberate of explaining to them, like, look, you only have so much time and so much energy in the day and we've mm-hmm. got to focus on, you know, the, the, the big hitters or the uh, big kahuna, whatever it is to, you know, just make sure that we're uh, being intentional and um, kind of getting the most bang for our buck, right? Getting the most uh, benefit for our effort because we can't, you know, overhaul every detail of your life overnight. So, you, you know, you get those people that they're, you know, hyper-focused on using one of their spoons to turn off their Wi-Fi router, but it's like, yeah, but you didn't take your binders. So I think right, we're right. flip-flopped here. Um, and then I, I, I love what we're saying with, uh, so then, you know, urine testing, which, um, you know, seems to be a pretty popular tool. I do worry about that. I, I think sometimes it feels like the holistic space it's as a space, not pointing any fingers. It, it just sometimes feels like it, it's really good at creating problems. Um, but does it always solve them? And so mm-hmm. I, I, I like what you're saying with 
you know, cause, um, you know, I was, I was participating in a project recently and, uh, a lot of urinary mycotoxin going, testing going on. And of course people start freaking out of running. Oh my gosh. Like, am I going to die? There's, you know, there's elevations in this, uh, gliotoxin and this might, you know, and they're trying to pronounce mm-hmm. it and stuff. And so it's like, okay, right. But these are toxins that you are peeing out of your body. Right. Um, so I am curious since we're on that note, how you feel about, uh, mycotoxin testing as a clinical tool, I would imagine, you know, that fluctuation in excretion and, mm-hmm. um, how you think that can be used as part of a more sophisticated, you know, treatment plan. Right. So as, as time is marching on, I'm really trying to figure out how to express to other providers what, what I've really learned in all of this. And something that I keep coming back to is when I left school, one of, I can't remember what provider it was, but um, it was in my clinical rotations. They said, what is the benefit of running that test? I'm like, well, you'll, you'll know what food allergies they have. Like, of course, like, duh, you know, and they're like, right, but what is the benefit? And you're like, I have other things to do. I got to go, <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of us get really, um, I call it, I call it the booger in the tissue metaphor. Yeah. So nasty. Yes. I'm sorry, but no, I love it. Most people in America, you blow your nose and you, sometimes you just pick up a tissue to make sure you don't, you know, maybe it's not bloody or maybe, I, I don't know. It's just human reaction. Yep. Right. So what is the benefit of doing a test? Like, yeah, you just blew your nose. Guess what? There's going to be something in the tissue more than likely. Like yep. it's a similar thing with a test. So you really need to understand, like, sure, the test is going to give you information, but how are you going to use that information? How is that going to be a benefit? And so something that I've really been trying to distill down for physicians and other practitioners is know the question that the test is asking. Know the question the test is It's like, sounds so stupid and so forward, but there are so many people, especially you know, neophytes in this world who, and I've been, you know, guilty of it in the beginning too, where you just go mold. Okay. I'm going to shoot every mold test Mm -hmm. at this Mm -hmm. and see what sticks. And the reality is like, well, how is that going to be a benefit? And so you're in mycotoxin testing. It's never something that should be used as a one-off. It just never is. It is something that needs to be used as a, set point in the data and if it's used as a one-off you've just opened up this realm it is not a permanent thing it is not like a genetic test that will tell you a yes or no this is ever present in this person it's saying at this snapshot in time this is where this was so with your mycotoxin testing and i use the eliza methodology Mm -hmm. because um they are looking, because of the methodology, there is potential for some wiggle room to examine the fact that these are metabolic uh, products of the breakdown of the mycotoxin. Um, I have reached out to Great Plains Labs on three occasions. I have the, the email history, um, specifically requesting what type of analyte um, that they were using in the lab study. So when they say the metabolite of ochratoxin A, 
I want to know what they're looking for in their urine. They have a beautiful specificity. They use liquid chromatography. Um, and, you know, these things that are getting into our pee have gone through <clears throat> phase one detox, phase two, two detox, and now they're in the urine. So they're going to have some type of physical change then. They're going to have gone through all the modifications um, in the CYPs, and then they go through glucuronidation and all this stuff. So they're going to have a different signal on liquid chromatography. And my question was, <clears throat> are you looking for aflatoxin that's gone through glucuronidation or something that has that added change to its chemical structure? And I never got an email back. So maybe they can reach out to me now that I'm saying this and, and let me know. <clears throat> so because I've never had that confirmation and the specific name of what they're testing, I've supported real-time labs simply because they use an ELISA methodology. <clears throat> and they use um, one second. The ELISA methodology uses antibodies. And the type of antibodies they use are non-monoclonal, which means that they're a little bit more forgiving in kind of what they reach out and give a hug to. And so when you have these toxins that are going through phase one, phase two detox, they're going to change structure, just like I just said. And an antibody is going to be more likely, especially if it's not monoclonal, to embrace something that might look a little different than be so specific as compared to liquid chromatography. So I find that when I use real-time labs, I'm casting a wider net. And I'm truly looking for the thing that has left the body. Mm -hmm. That's why I use real-time labs. So my clinical question when I run a real-time lab assay is, what is leaving the body at this moment in time? And we say, okay, so if that's leaving that body, we know that that was it. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all so much for listening to the Holistic Savage podcast. We on the Holistic Savage team all really appreciate you and want to stay connected with you. So please rate, review, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. And if you like the podcast, help get the word out. And now back to the show. In there at some level and that it's leaving. And so we work on the person, we work on supporting detox. Three months later, we retest. And what we should see typically, I usually give people like six months to a year, is kind of this inverse U-shape, inverse parabola. of It's like a roller coaster because it's what's leaving the body. Starts low, leaves more, leaves more, leaves more. And at some point, you've drained the reservoir that's in the body. Mm -hmm. And so what's going to come out is even less and less and less until you infinitely approach zero. Like, whatever, you know? <laughs> so... Um, usually in that case, the real-time lab mycotoxin test I find to be very helpful as numerous data set points over our time in which we're detoxing people. With that being said, there can, different mycotoxins I've seen with people can be detoxed at different rates. There is the potential for maybe one to detox faster than the other, depending on their detox genetics and what's happening with whatever CYP enzymes that they have that the mycotoxin is being processed. Um, and, you know, I, I find that to be really helpful. So when people say real, you know, <clears throat> mycotoxin testing sucks. And I'm like, yeah, well, what are you asking? What are you looking for? What is the piece of information? 
And there's tons of other mold testing that you can do. You know, you can look at serology, you can look at IgM, IgG, IgE, IgA. Each one of those is going to tell you something about where it is in the body, how the body's interacting with it. Um, you know, and it, it, there's just so much there. You could do antigen testing to see if little pieces of the um, mold cell wall is kicking around in the body. Um, you can do PCR testing for a few of them. And so it's just really, what are you using to validate the clinical picture? Because you will have people come to you and they'll say, I know I'm exposed to mold. I know I feel worse in mold. And that right there should be like the thing. Mm -hmm. That right there of how people feel when they're out of it and how people feel when they're improved should really be the important aspect of the diagnosis of it. But until we have, you know, a microbe that only interacts with a human in one way, and we have one test that is 100% sensitive and spe uh, specific that can really unite those two things, we're stuck with working with what we have to answer the questions that we have. Mm -hmm. I love what you're saying with, uh, you know, what's the question, right, that, that the test is answering and whatnot. And, you know, I always like to preach about, uh, you know, the uh, lab data is only as meaningful as, as well as the practitioner can extrapolate, you know, meaningful mm -hmm. information. And, um, you know, there, there is a lot of kind of, you know, people take the lab at face value or trying to treat the piece of paper and like, well, it doesn't really work that way. And so I love hearing this because um, I think that's so important of really understanding the technology. What exactly is that measuring? How does that really relate back to the, the client or the patient? And using it to confirm the or validate the clinical picture, not using it to, um, you know, validate like confirmation bias. <laughs> you know, right, it's a right, totally right. different thing. And I, I think the people that get caught up, I'm sorry to cut you oh, off. You're I good, just you're good. To throw this out here. I got off a conference call once um, because I heard someone say that you're, everyone knows urine mycotoxin tests are trash. And I was like, I got to go. You know, I, I didn't have the space to fight about something that someone already had made a, a decision about. The reality is it's a piece of information. That's all it is. It's neither good nor bad. Um, and if you're looking to diagnose SIRS from a mycotoxin test, it ain't going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen because that's not the clinical question it's answering. And so I think when people think, well, they go, SIRS, biotoxin illness. And you're like, whoa. Think back to the Venn diagrams and the four overlaying circles and think about how this person is presenting and what test can help you really dig further and look and think about that. So, mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, changing gears a little bit to the environmental side of it, because, I, you know, this keeps me up at night. And, you know, I, I always find it interesting. Uh, uh, you know, movies have changed so much in the past 10 years. And I, and I noticed these things of kind of what the media is, is feeding us versus, you know, kind of mainstream media versus more artistic, creative media with shows and movies. Um, and I'm seeing more movies and, and shows and stuff kind of, I was just watching a movie last night, actually, kind of sprinkling in glimpses of moldy buildings. And mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder if this is like a subliminal strategy to kind of like remind people of like, hey, if you see water damage, like you might want to do something. Um, in our last conversation, you know, you said something really interesting 
that's almost like haunted me a little bit because oh sorry know, oh no, <laughs> in, in a good way but I just I've got this like bleeding heart syndrome or something and um, you know, so the CDC is kind of getting a little bit more hot on Lyme and reporting all these new cases and whatnot, but we're not really seeing this with, you know, mold or mold illness or mycotoxicosis. You mentioned the diagnostic criteria and whatnot. Um, and you mentioned the, you know, how many government buildings are flat roofed, right? Or how many government buildings might be water damaged or moldy and kind of what that might mean. And I think that's kind of an important element because what I, what kind of breaks my heart is thinking about all the impoverished, not just Americans, but, you know, around the world, but speaking at least as an American, how many people are impoverished living in a crappy old, you know, um, musty apartment that's been water damaged many a times before, you know, they don't have the money to do this or that. What, what's your take on what these people can really do to, to help themselves when, you know, uh, exposure avoidance is really step one? Right. You know, that's, that's a heavy weighted conversation and, you know, it's true. The reality is that, you know, according to NIOSH, potentially 50% of the buildings in the United States have either current or past history of water damage. Um, you know, that the best thing that you can really tell people is get out, get out or change, change something. I think a lot of people um, get really excited about um, perfection. Again, mm-hmm. we'll say it. Of I'm going to move out of my moldy home and I am going to find the perfect home. The reality is there's there's mold or mold spores everywhere. It doesn't mean that it's growing in a carpet in a building, you know. Uh, and when I say carpet, I mean like a colony. It doesn't mean that it could just have come in on the wind or something like that. So, you know, if you do testing for living environments, you'll always find something, unless it's a hermetically sealed, you know, uh, completely sterile even then that's questionable with all the hospitals and you know that's been happening in children's hospital in Seattle and so what I'm getting at here is it's the change it's the shift that you're looking for because let's say the building that I would currently be sick in might have tons of stachybotrys and might have tons of aspergillus niger but then I can go to my mom's home or someone else's home that I feel a little bit better in yeah, they have a little bit of water damage, but maybe they have more cladosporium. And maybe cladosporium is a little bit more allergenic for me rather than more toxic and brain foggy for me. So my goal with people isn't to get perfection, but to get a different uh, environment, a different um, kind of altogether fingerprint of ecology in a different space. Because just that little reprieve of being somewhere else can really make a huge difference and allow your body to get caught up to itself to detox. And for people who are like, I don't know anyone. I, I can't do anything. I can't leave. I, I'm physically stuck in my home. Um, you know, there are air purifiers and air filters. That's a really big conversation to kind of break out and tease apart. But something as simple as a... Um, and this is going into masks, and I know masks are a really charged topic right now. So please, outside of the, the, the pathos of the current climate of where we're existing, 
the dialogue of masks in the complex chronic illness community has always been there. It's been ever present. It's not contingent on the, the current state of affairs. Mm-hmm. So um, there are particular masks that have a carbon insert that can act as an adsorbing, so sticking to an adsorbing agent. So you're, you're, you might not be taking yourself out of the situation, but you're blocking the mechanism of entry into the body. So you're creating a little hermetic seal, or even to the point of maybe not a perfect seal, but you're at least lessening the exposure and the saturation. Is there transdermal exposure to mycotoxins? Sure, absolutely. You know, could you worry about mucosa and all that? Sure, you could. But, you know, there can be something really profound about someone, you know, wearing a mask when they're in their home for a third of the day and then they're receiving that much third less exposure as possible. Um, There's also the potential of opening up windows and allowing for cross-freeze and ventilation. Um, You know, some people can even go so far as like renting or borrowing an ozone machine or getting a cheap one on Amazon for a hundred bucks and trying to at least do some type of, you can't be in the home when you run an ozone machine, people, Um, but potentially doing some type of treatment and then doing some type of a fan, trying to exhaust it out. You know, the, the issue is if there's mold in there, you're not going to get better. Um, However, you can always do small things to work towards the process of getting out. Um, I know firsthand of what it's like to live in a situation that you really have difficulties leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're kind of, you're kind of stuck in a moldy situation. Like I know what that is, you know? So in those instances, I, I tell people like, you're not necessarily going to recover. The best that we can do is really work on, um, bailing out the boat so it stays afloat. You know, when you're really going to be able to get the boat fully righted and take off on the wind is when you get out of that particular exposure. Wonderful. I think, it, you know, and it is a heavy subject, but I think this is valuable dialogue to have. And, and even during kind of uh, current times, I've been having friends uh, that are in a moldy home and they're sending me their test results like, Pardon! They're getting worse. Um, it's like, well, I don't think being cooped up in your moldy home this whole time is helping a whole lot. So uh, definitely important dialogue. And I love what you're saying, again, about not getting too caught up on chasing perfection, but just different. Give your body a break. Give your body a different stimulus. You know, mm-hmm. it's little things that can add up over time. Move to a different bedroom or close the bedroom that you're in and tape it up and sleep on the couch. Or, you know, I, I've had people do, do everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I've even had people change with their spouses and their partners who don't seem to have, you know, an allergy or, you know, a sensitivity or something just to get into a better space in the home for that many more hours of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there are things that you can do to, to chip away at the exposure. And that's really the key. And the crappiest part right now is we're all home. Mm-hmm. We're all stuck home. So we actually see there's two, two things that are coming to fruition here as people are staying home and they're working from home and they're potentially realizing their exposure at home is a big deal now that they're there 24 hours a day. And then you have people who have been in school or have been in work 
and now they're home and they're the most productive they've ever been because their home is their safe space. So even if you're stuck in a, an unsafe home or it's water damaged, like, you know, potentially like go to a cafe and sit and work there and like anything to just change it and shift it. Air purifiers are a, a potential use. Um, air filters are of potential use, um, but you also hit your max with those where at some point, you know, um, you need to keep up with the filters. They might be blowing stuff back into the air. They're not the solution for like mold growing in physically in your environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I was uh, actually like right before uh, everything kind of went down earlier this year, I was in um, Dallas at this, it was a joint conference, uh, kind of like dental meets environmental. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You know, Jill I was, was on my like, list. I didn't make it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that that was kind of a cool one. It was it was an interesting mixture. Um, in our booth, we were in this conference hall, and uh, it was so just musty smelling. And I'm not I'm not one of these people that's you know super you know I've been super chronically ill and I'm so sensitive and I walk into a room and feel I'm not one of those people, but literally 10 minutes of sitting at that booth in that musty area. And I, I was just it, the irony of it, of course. So we, we got out of there in a hurry, but we were literally like rotating, like, all right, you're, you're going to sit there for a few minutes. I'll be out here again. Oh my gosh. No, it's, it's legit. It's legit. I tell people, you know, when you come to me, you're not getting someone who's just done, done the, the study and whatever. And that's, glutathione in this like yeah. I have physically experienced what it is like to not know what goes into my purse because I can't think mm -hmm. I, I you know I, I've experienced not being able to count how many gallons of paint we need for the inside house because I've been in a home that has exposure and I have to sit outside and you know, I, every time I have exposure, I have to come home and I have to shower. In fact, I had an exposure last night. Mm. Like, I, I get it. I, you know, there's if you're sensitive to it, you'll always be sensitive. But it's amazing when you've recovered enough, you can go, oh, I'm getting that headache. You know what? Let's, like, get home. I'll shower. I'll do a couple of things to help kind of stop that inflammation cascade. Um, and I'll feel better. And the recovery and once you know your body and your responses, how quick you can just like, I'm here talking to you, not foggy, you know, enjoying myself, interacting well, versus if that were something that people uh, I would have been in contact with day to day, this would be one of the harder conversations to have. So uh, recovery is possible and your weakness actually really becomes the strength of the canary in the coal mine. So long as you listen to yourself mm -hmm. and you learn to get out when you start feeling a little off, but the recovery is much quicker. Um, but yeah, uh, sitting in conferences, like that's one of the harder things, um, you know, uh, as a provider is you go and you're like, Oh no. To the point that I always stay in Airbnbs. Yeah. I, I don't do hotels. I just can't. And I won't. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't say exactly, but the event that you mentioned earlier, I was there last year and, and there was there was this hallway that connected like the hotel to the, the conference center. 
Um, and it literally, there was, um, you know, plastic taped down over a section of the carpet. And it, I literally was like speeding, sprinting through that hallway, like not breathing. Cause it was so awful just to walk through. I'm like, I can't do this. I have to go talk about the biochemistry of this stuff. And in 30 minutes, I can't be breathing this right now. Um, but it's crazy how, how fast it can be. But um, you made a very important point of listening to your body and uh, getting in sync and in tune with that, which is something that, you know, I'm, I'm so passionate about with teaching people of like, hey, you know, yes, the, you will need doctors throughout your life for this and that. But like nobody can teach you how to listen to your body. You know, they can. Well, I mean, they can teach you how to be a little bit more in tune. And I think. Um, you know, lab testing and all these different things can kind of act as training wheels so we can learn how to, you know, balance and be in tune and recognize these things. But yeah, it's um, listening to that biofeedback and, and nurturing your body appropriately. Yeah. And you see that a lot. Um, you know, I think some of the saddest, most upsetting things is when uh, patients have been gaslit by providers not to listen. You know, and that's typical. You have someone coming in with mold exposure to their primary care. They're like, oh, I have brain fog. And, you know, I have this rash and I can't focus and I can't sleep. And they're like antidepressant. So mm -hmm. sure, while they don't know how how to like take care of these things, by working that, they're also, you know, um, gaslighting someone essentially into saying like, it's 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 not what you think it is. Sorry, moving on. And I, it's I don't know. It just, oh, it makes me so angry. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me so, because it's part of everyone's story. Yeah. Almost everyone's story who I see. Yeah. Well, I mean, good thing we have people like you doing the work, though. So that leads me as we start wrapping up. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, the uh, your ideal patient that you want to work with, that you love to work with, and, and what kind of people you do like to take on for your practice. Because you do telemedicine, and you can work with people all over the place. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in warmth and humor. Um, I, I really like people who are ready to change or at least willing to listen, learn, and one part trust the process and equal parts be empowered in doing so. So I never ask people to follow me blindly in what I do when I work with them. Um, I always ask for people's feedback, how they resonate with things. Um, you know, so I, I, there's equal parts. I think the hard part, and I, I can be honest with this, I, I don't do well with combative folks. You know, that's just my energy. Um, I, I'm not the most, um, I don't like confrontation. I'm a jam. And so I, I really tend to um, attract a lot of, um, gentle, kind, motivated people who are really ready to, to make the change for themselves. Um, and I always try to reflect that to people. There are people who are like, oh, thank you so much for your help. I'm like, you're the one who did it. Like, I'm just kind of put down the guide rails and scooched you along. So really the people who um, have that kind of softness ready to learn and who have also been, I think there's something to be said about being humbled by your illness. I think. Um, People who have hit that point, I tend to work really, really, really well with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm not, um, I'm not the type of person 
who does really well with the, the prove this to me, prove it why. And I can, I can sit and tell you and go through those, but you really want to spend your, your two hours of your intake of me citing PubMed and doing all that when we could really be getting good work done. So like I said, it's not a matter of um, following me blindly. And if people do want to learn from me, um, they're welcome to do any of my writing or read any of my writing on NDNR and all that kind of stuff. It's out there. Just, you know, do a quick Google search. But um, yeah, and I, I, I really enjoy working with um, women and I enjoy working with children too. Children are, are fun, really fun to work with. So. Well, it's yeah. wonderful. It's great. So certainly, uh, uh, I do have a lot of mold people that kind of are paying attention to me these days. So if any of you guys are, you know, at your wits end, you're struggling, because there's definitely, you know, with the, the rise of the functional health professional, which is something I'm really passionate about, but we also have to make sure we keep in mind there's, there's uh, a big difference between functional health coaching and functional medical treatment. And so mm -hmm. certainly... I know I, I get a ton of people that they'll come to me and like, sure, I can, I can educate you all day. I can run a lot of tests. I can empower you. I can't write you that prescription. I can't mm -hmm. treat you for this or that. And that's where we have these uh, specialists like yourself that can come in and, you know, I send, uh, I, I send my problematic cases your way. So to any of you listening, you know, if, if you feel like this uh, episode resonates and, you know, you're struggling to get well, you've done a lot of the other things, um, you know, Lauren very well may, might be that person to uh, get, get your life back. Because, you know, as, as your handle says, that you can have a life after mold, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I, I am so comfortable with honoring that. Um, you know, I, I am a vice president of a nonprofit called ICI. So I-S-E-A-I the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. And uh, we work to train all practitioners, actually, FDNs included, um, to, to learn how to treat environmental medicine. So uh, we do have a conference that is coming up. And if you guys really want to kind of learn and ignite your passion on this, I encourage people to, to check out ICI. Um, and if there's other kind of educational components so that if you want to learn that, you can go to ICI. Additionally, we have a listing of providers and practitioners there, too. So if you don't jive with me, there's plenty of other people out there who I'm sure are absolutely willing to, to work with you. And I really hope that people find the match that they need. Um, so ICI will be having a conference in the fall. And additionally, um, I, I believe I'll be speaking at that one. And then um, the AAMP conference with Dr. Paul Anderson, uh, which should be happening in Seattle, but I think also has the ability to go virtual. Um, I will be doing, uh, I, I believe, five presentations on that. Everything from um, pediatrics to um, ethical uh, issues with uh, mold diagnosis to uh, fatigue and all these different cool things. And uh, the president of ICI, Mary Ackerley, will also be there uh, giving lectures. And of course, the wonderful Paul Anderson. If you don't know anything about him, guys, definitely check him out. He's been a wonderful, near and dear mentor to me. So. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, AMP was um, awesome last year. I loved being at that event. And the ICI, though, was literally uh, easily one of my favorite conferences out of the like 25 that I did last year. So um, I can't wait for, for round two this year, this fall. 
Yeah, we're we're hoping it'll be good. We would it'll be good. It'll be great. It'll be it's good. Curious time. Curious <laughs> time. Um, yeah. So if people also want to go ahead and find me, um, those are the organizations I'm affiliated with. But my practice, Life After Mold. I have an Instagram handle. I have a YouTube. I have Twitter. What else do I have? A Facebook. I have a website. Um, and I also have a free e-booklet called Mold Prevention 101 available at my website, which kind of walks you through how to go through your house and see what things you might need to, you know, keep your eye on as the years pass. Should you consider a French drain? Is that dehumidifier going to be helpful? What about active ventilation? That kind of thing. So that can be really helpful for people. Um, and once again, that's at um, lifeaftermold.com. If you dig around on the website, you'll be able to find it. Absolutely. We'll be sure to include those links in the uh, description of the episode and whatnot. So be sure to check that out because uh, just free information help help people navigate this stuff and um, try to prevent it, try to avoid it, try to get their life back. So uh, Lauren, my friend, I, I'm so glad we finally did this. This was an amazing conversation. And although it's not looking like we'll cross paths in person anytime soon, I'm, I'm glad that we can uh, stay connected through the internet and so grateful for your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Brendan. It means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Keep doing your work and we'll keep uh, lifting the world up, you know. So I hope you have a beautiful rest of the day with your family and your baby and maybe do some pottery. Uh, there you go. <laughs> don't work too hard, you know, while you're looking out for everybody else. I will. You too. All thank right. You. Have a beautiful day. We'll talk soon. Yep. Bye. Bye.